Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your keepers of mysteries, Jen Brinkman, Mark Bruner, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Socorro and be inspired. Welcome to the Sanctum Socorum Podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. We're here to help you serve these literary offerings at your DCC RPG table. I am Bob. With me tonight are Jen. Hello, hello. And Mark. Good evening. Tonight, our Appendix N-ish story is The Powder of Hyperborea, also known as The Theft of the 39 Girdles, by Clark Ashton Smith. Not directly Appendix N, but an author who is oddly overlooked in the Appendix N list, and is also a favorite of the Dark Master, Joseph Goodman. So, Mark, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about tonight's story? Retired Master Thief, Satampra, Zerios of Ulzadorum, recounts an adventure from days gone by when he and his two companions, Vixila and the dubious magician alchemist, Vizi Fincor endeavored to rob the Temple of the Moon God Leniqua and steal away with the 39 Girdles of Virginity, originally published in the Saturn Science Fiction and Fantasy. It is the last of Clark's Hyperborea cycle. Yeah. Granted, yeah, I chose the story blind just because it included Hyperborea. <laughs> like, Ooh, that looks good, Hyperborea, yeah. And when I started reading it, I was starting to wonder exactly you know, like how, how, how dirty of a story have i just wandered us into this is this this might be a little salacious but well when you read the alternate title or the maybe one of the original published titles yes the theft of the 39 girdles that's what well, it was originally published as the powder of hyperborea i checked uh, as a matter of fact that issue of saturn science fiction and fantasy is available in like epub moby pdf etc on internet archive we'll post a link mm. to it so people can, mm. can see the actual issue but yeah the idea of stealing 39 chastity belts from a temple involved in ritual prostitution maybe this might be a little a little too much but uh, but i had fun with it i thought it was a pretty cool story you know even with the sexual overtones this story and and the setting of azolda room feels like it would fit in a lankmar conan story i was definitely got the, the conan vibe down you know quite a bit and obviously that's the trade that was going on in the background with lovecraft and smith and howard during this during the early days of the hyperborean cycle I'm not sold on all of that. To me, it read like a cumbersome first-person point of view account from Grey Mouser. See, now, I didn't find it cumbersome, but that's that's interesting. I thought some of the language use and slang use was nice, like Mazard. I, I had to stop and look at that for a minute, because the, the comment was like, in spite of a well-cracked Mazard from Fixila's Blow, I was like, what, what, wait, what? Mazard is an old English slang term for head. Oh, okay, I get it. So I liked kind of the colorful language. You know, some of it was obscure, some of it was fanciful. In in some ways, it was sort of like reading Vance, because, you know, Vancean language, there's like, uh, what was that? And then there's, oh, that's kind of old and familiar, but archaic. And I liked, I liked that combination. 
for me, the language was, you know, echoed the, these authors that we've mentioned in the past, you know, like Merritt and Vance. Smith obviously has a really fun time with language, you know, but he, he can sometimes be over the top for me. This one didn't quite match some of the other stories that I've read by him that I felt like he was just throwing words at the reader or showing his erudition or, you know, it, it just didn't seem like he was over, trying too hard. But at the same time, it definitely had his style. I, I picked out a word too, which was lupinar. I think is how you say it, which was the old word for brothel, which I thought was kind of a fun thing I wanted to work into the and, and some future writing at some point. Okay, may, maybe I wasn't... Okay, by cumbersome, I just meant the whole thing felt like it could have been one of Grey Mouser's escapades, but being told in a first-person point of view, that's what made it a little more cumbersome for me. So it wasn't necessarily the use of language, no, because one of the effects of the titular title, the powder there, was lascivious blue cadavers was one of the effects that came out of that powder and that just that was beautiful there was one thing about the powder that i still don't get and for those, those of you who have read the story there's a, there's it's, a powder just pause right now and just yeah pause, it's, back 11, it's, it's 10 pages yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the uh the the powder creates all these hallucinations but what I thought was interesting is that they covered up their faces so they weren't breathing the powder, but they were still seeing the hallucinations. And so I was kind of confused as to what the difference was. I thought I thought that was maybe a plot hole you could drive a truck through. Um, well, that I, thought, I thought it was more similar to like the you know kind of like the cryofungus that we read in the Sign of the Labyrinth. It was almost like they were protecting themselves from the worst effects by covering themselves up and not breathing it in directly, sort of like they were able to sustain, you know, a little bit longer than the people that are actually directly exposed to it, possibly. Well, they, they didn't cover their faces immediately. The, mm, the, the effect happened immediately upon ignition, and then then they covered their faces and they were able to resume. Yeah, but they spent like 20 minutes going through <laughs> robbing the place, I mean. <laughs> well, right. They had to but, get all 39 girdles. Exactly. What really caught me about the powder's effects, what struck me as a little odd is that people in the town remember that powder having been used in the past and I, how do you know really even if you were affected by it how would you know it's that powder uh, i i would say that if, if you if are not an alchemist used before or alch well but there are other alchemists that's that's kind of the point and they found traces of the powder which means if they recognized it, they'd probably found traces of the powder the last time it'd been used. I didn't have a problem suspending my disbelief for that, just because I'm sure Hyperborea CSI, but <laughs> it, it just, it, to me, that sort of made sense. Like, like I said, the, the big thing for me was, okay, so you're still having all the hallucinations. I, I kind of, I mean, to me, that ending, at, and like, I don't think we're spoiling anything by talking about the details of the plot, because it is a short story. And, and, you know, you and it can, is from 1958. Yeah, and right. we'll put a link to it, you know, up as well. But there's a very, you know, sort of what won me over the story was the the letter at the end, right from from the alchemist, which is a a great ending for a short story. It, it's a great lead off for future sort of ventures. But I I sort of took that letter in that I didn't know if I fully trusted everything that the alchemist was writing, right? Because he was obviously trying to scam them to a certain extent and take away the gold. So I'm, I'm going to tell you guys to get out of town that everybody's looking for you. And by the way, they've got your names from the priest who's not quite dead. You know, there's a little bit of ambiguity there in terms of they trust him, but they couldn't trust him. How much should they trust him 
in what he's saying now, but they can they afford not to, right? So well, yeah. I kind of took it as more of a, you know, he's he's trying to lay a lot of, you know, sort of verbal traps. He might get them in trouble if they stick around town. He doesn't want them to stick around town. So Well, and essentially it ended with, don't follow me. Yeah. You know, good luck <laughs> in your endeavors. Hopefully you take a path that isn't mine. And it was kind of wow, dude. Kind of classic heist film. You know, nobody really trusts oh, each yeah. other. And then at the end, somebody takes off with almost everything. And you're left wondering, you know, did he did he give them the one cube of gold just so there'd be enough evidence to hang them? Yeah. You know, I, uh, but if you examine it from the beginning, Satampra comes to this pharmacist slash toxicologist and says, this is what we want to do. And then the alchemist comes up with the rest of the plan and lays it out for them step by step by step. Like, mm-hmm. that was a little too clean, and they should have known something was up at that point, but they were just well, so set on, yeah, we're going to do this. And they didn't stop to think that this dude's clearly got a little bit more experience and smarts and uh, deviousness. I mean, it, it, it so calls into question Satampra's naming himself as a master thief to me, because he clearly doesn't have, you know, the same skills as the people that he contacts. He doesn't have a right? plan. He just has the idea. Which I thought was an intriguing idea, you know. What you know, I, I haven't read the other story that he appears in in the Hyperborean cycle. In the, in but the I know he loses story. a hand. You know, yeah. In the first story, <laughs> again, just like this one, he's telling these stories in in the age of his retirement. So obviously, time has passed between this event and his telling of the story. But yeah, um, in the first story he appears in, it's implied he's a one-handed former thief. That is, <laughs> sure. that's a good reason to retire. This it, it was an interesting story, and I'm glad we we got the chance to read it. It did echo, like I said. A lot of Conan to me, more so than than Lankmar, and I, I was particularly thinking about the story, of the Tower of the Elephant, and Ooh. yeah, the, the, it's, it, there's a lot of echoes with the Taurus figure from Conan, who's who is a master thief in his own right, who is a hefty master thief, you know, who has these agile fingers, but it's told from that point of view of they're sort of daring themselves to go after a sort of an unconquerable thief right, you know, in a sense, by going after both the girdles or the tower. And it's sort of this one-upsmanship of uh, of the figures that are, or the characters that are in the book. And so I, I saw a lot of that in the story. There's also this whole morality that's in the story that's a little bit of the Conan morality of we're robbing from those who deserve it. And really, it's only the people that deserve to be robbed that are um, like civilization deserves to be robbed because it is civilization in the Howard sense. But in Smith's sense, it's Satamtra saying this group, for example, is doing religious prostitution. They are not the righteous people they are. They are opening up the girdles for the people who pay the highest. Yeah. And at the same time, he's freeing those women. Exactly. Yeah. Satamtra actually says he has robbed no man who is not in some way a robber of others. And he endeavors to serve merely as an agent in the rightful redistribution of wealth. <laughs> and he's it's kind of interesting because the the character Satampra is kind of a light I wouldn't go so far as to say comedic character in Clark Ashton Smith's writing but he's certainly light but of the two stories with him this is certainly the lighter one the first story it's dark it's got Sathagwa it's it's you know, hor- you know horrible idol in the cave sort of badness but over 27 years the character softens and lightens up a bit more Interesting that there was such a big span between his revisiting this. It, you know, I think we're doing some of the background research. It's you're, like you said, it's written in the late 30s and then picks it up again in 1957, 1958, and, and it's the last story of that cycle. So he he obviously had you know some reason for revisiting it, some reason for revisiting it in the fashion he did, but bookending it with Satampra narrative once more. 
Yeah, 11 stories in 27 years. It's an interesting bit of cycle. And the other thing I found really interesting about this is that there is very little magic. There's allusions to magic. There's certainly Satampra, you know, when he when he approaches the alchemist, he's wary of any of the magic practices of the alchemist leaking into whatever potion they were going to be using. Right. Um, because because they because obviously he's a little inept at, at that skill, but there's no sort of magical wards, no sort of um, creatures or monstrous creatures that they're they're overcoming. It's a it's a very straight up heist, and it's very little of the sword and sorcery pure genre. Well, and he makes he makes Vizi swear that the powder is not magical; that it is just alchemical and science. So, yeah, it's it's definitely not a high magic story. I wrote down swords and science genre instead of swords and sorcery, just because I, <laughs> it felt so <laughs> so science based. You know. Oh, nice. Well, shall we move on to some things to stat? Certainly. I mean, this was a short story. There's not a whole lot here to stat. <laughs> Actually, I, th- I think we got a little bit more inspiration from this than we did the last story. At least that's what I'm taking from it. I think, well, maybe in part because there weren't so many things. But then again, Attack from Atlantis didn't have a whole lot of things either. But the stuff here is more evocative, certainly. Right, because it was technology as opposed to science. Yeah, I mean... And technology's kind of cut and dry. With these things, there's a lot more flexibility, especially for DCC. Very true, very true. And a lot of the stuff just sort of fits into the categories really nicely. I mean, Liniqua, the moon god, well, you, you don't need to do a whole lot to write up a god for DCC. And you know, certainly you could extend it to a patron if you wanted to, but he is specifically the moon god. And so that's that's a an easy write-up, something fairly simple to add to your game. If you don't mind ritual prostitution, uh, I suppose you, <laughs> you, you could skip that part, though. Um, <laughs> and that, that actually led me to wonder, is Lenequa male or female or uh, his, other? is specifically referenced as he, because the light on the statue casts his shadow. I, I looked for that, actually. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Which is an odd gender for a moon god. you know. That's, that's... Right. That, too. The temple guards can be written up for the Meta Magician section, you know, with their big curved mm. blades. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, our three main characters, as well as Marquanos, the high priest, could be written up, and they'd be fun NPCs. The powder of fetid apparitions <laughs> came, came to mind. And there was a couple other poisons they mentioned in passing. The uh, the jungle lily pollen and the sleep draft. And you, you can never have too many poisons. I mean, that's... Wasn't there also a love potion that he was preparing as they walked in? Oh, yes. there. Oh, that's a good call. Yeah, that's right. Yes, yes. It there, there. bugged me because it could help to bring the near dead back to life, but could also affect infants. And I'm like, <laughs> why? Why would there be a love draft for that? Why? <laughs> I think it's so potent is what he was saying. That it, Yeah, it, I, the, thought, I thought he was talking about like nonagenarians, 90 year old men. I didn't think he was talking about children. It's well, no, he, infants specific- and oh, yeah. I think yeah, he, I think he was saying weird. that. Yeah, it gets weird. It's it's the potency of the the drug that he's making is so so powerful that it's going to even cause this love potion to work on infants and. Oh, and, you're right. I just an old man. Oh god, <laughs> that is a love filter that would inflame a nursing infant or resurrect the powers of a dying nonagenarian. <laughs> Do you? No, no, we don't need anything of the sort. <laughs> and that, kind of that uncomfortable. No, 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 no. That's that's you just stay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's that's an after hours game. Thanks. <laughs> Dougcon after dark. Oh god. <laughs> 
<laughs> what else do you have, John? Oh, oh I, I could just see Brenda running that one. Um, oh, no. <laughs> uh, well, VZ Fencor may well be a featured NPC in my next campaign. <laughs> He's delightfully devious and... God forbid anyone try to get the one up on him, man. Satrampra, I wasn't quite sure what to make of him, but Vixila really struck me. Again, I don't know if it's just because my brain is stuck in Lankmar or just the urban setting keeps taking me back there. But Vixila struck me as a cross between Ivrian and Vlana. Uh, so statting her could be really interesting because really good thief, but also perhaps enjoyed her time as one of the quote-unquote virgins under Leniqua's service. And they also get into the mechanics of opening a wax-sealed vial in a round, per se. And it's a really good reminder that it should really take one action to open and use a potion, especially if you've got the wax seal on it and then the cork and everything. So that kind of struck me as a really nice uh, reminder for in-game play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, also, it's just that, that follow-on, they had to actually ignite it, if I remember. So there's... It's just the complications around using potions in a game. You can put a lot of flavor just from the story. Right. It's very good, yeah. So you could run it, but uh, those steps would actually take two rounds. And then I had to wonder, would rotting vegetation, say a cartload of it, mask the smell of gold to a dwarf? Yeah, that's an interesting question because it is it is the dwarf's sense of smell. So in theory, I would think that you could, I would think that strong, overwhelming scents certainly could. I mean, skunk sprays off in the area is certainly not going to smell gold. So maybe it could. Maybe you could mask the scent of gold from dwarves. Yeah. And yet in a cavern, you could smell it through walls and X number of feet away and, and yeah. So just uh, another thing that made me re-examine the stats and the rules as written, and you know maybe we could come up with some house rules or something for those situations. That would yeah, be a, a really neat campaign tool. Yeah, yeah. I think I think players, whenever they can put their thoughts on around something like that, that's a, that's a really good scenario for the judge to sort of lean in, even if the rules are sort of like explicit, just to say that's great. You get this type of benefit from it. Or penalty. Yeah. Or penalty. Right. Yeah. Or penalty. It strikes me as a thousand copper pieces. Nope. It's a, it's a battlefield. It makes me think that, uh, there's an entire gong farmer's almanac just in this book. (laughs) There is, there's a lot of really neat stuff in here. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a short, short story from the pulps, but there's, there's a lot of meat on this to kind of tear off and chew on. There is. What about you, Mark? Uh, I think, I mean, agree that the powder would be a good write-up, you know, because it's so evocatively phrased in terms of, with regard to what Jen said, which is like the lascivious blue cadavers intertwining around them. You know, that, that sort of hallucinogenic effect that you, there's a way of masking it through preparation, but um, otherwise it's it can be quite disturbing to anybody who's exposed to it. The NPC idea for VZ Fincor is he's a wonderful, very low-key uh, character in the beginning, but he proves himself to be quite more adept than the, the main narrator or any other thief in the story by coming up with a plan, by robbing the other thieves at the end, and by doing it with Dash of Verb. He's a fun character. Plus, he, he just has this sort of like this knowledge about him based on how much preparation he's doing when they're visiting him, what potions he has available, etc. So those two are great. Uh, he's kind of the master thief, really. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the last question I had was somebody needs to come up with the DC to, on picklocks to a golden girdle. 
And <laughs> well, granted, at least they weren't in use at the time they were stealing them. But yeah, <laughs> that's, that's true, right? That that oh. might be a that might be a question that <laughs> that might be a question better left for some other games. Uh, First but, time where the lock gets a reflex save. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe we should move on to props and audio suggestions. Well, you know, before we do, since since there's not a whole lot of things to stat, something we haven't done. Well, I probably since the the first episode. Why don't we pick something up that we will all write up? Uh, just hmm. because I mean, I'm, we we seemed. I think we all kind of liked um, VZ, and we all kind of liked the powder. Do we want to do one of those two? I think we're both trying to calculate in our brains how much we might have time for in the next couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> Let's do the, the powder. Would be easier, I think, to write up as a statable item than really? VZ as an NPC. Okay, just just because it. You could put, I think VZ as an NPC is so, so malleable. And it's not like yeah. there's, it's not like he's a patron. He's not like he's, it, it's not, it's harder to slip that into the game statable context versus the powder for me, at least. Oh, so we'll, we'll do the powder. And I've got to say, uh, one of the things that I was wondering about with the powder and why I brought up the whole, you know, they covered their face, but they're still seeing everything is VZ said there was no magic to the powder. Right. Hmm. necessarily mean that what they were seeing wasn't real. So. Okay. <laughs> a little bit freaky, thanks. So, okay, well, let's move on then to uh, to props and audio. What do you have, Jen? I'm going to shy away from the obvious and go with a small <laughs> cube of something that looks like gold. Okay, nice. can be a die or even just something that is made to look like a little trinket. I also liked the idea of getting a, a small mysterious statue and putting flame in front of it so that it casts bizarre shadows on the wall. Um, And that's about where the props section left me, because I was really hearing music while I was reading this. And at first, I was, if you will, uh, overlaying Dead Can Dance with Gregorian Chants, Mm -hmm. because it just seemed like that weird of a temple. And then I realized that the soundtrack of Kingdom of Heaven plays perfectly, and it fits for the urban, the cavern, and the temple environments. And it's 100% instrumental, so it won't interfere with your gameplay. And toward the end, with the flippant, don't follow me, uh, (laughs) my brain went to a less serious tone. You know, maybe just a simple harpsichord for tavern music, and I realized what I'm hearing in my head is the beginning of the Bard's Tale soundtrack. The one from 2004. Okay. If you wanted to give a Victorian feel to it, especially with the chastity belts and all of that, it gives it almost a bit of vaudevillian absurdity. And I found a tune called Come Into the Garden Mod, which is Alfred Tennyson poetry put to music and just perfectly in the period for it. And just it left me unable to take this seriously. And I think that's where I needed to be with some of the overarching themes. I think that's where we were meant to be. So that that's me. Good stuff. Good stuff. What about you, Mark? I came up with a couple of ideas based on the narrative. One, the thought of an NPC leaving with the treasure or leaving with something and leaving a note uh, that you could create, like a, a handwritten note, and leave that as a session ending. The players pick it up, and this is how you, you end that particular session. That's a great, to me, sort of effect that the, you know, the players can speculate. Uh, they can use that as a hook for the next adventure. It's also like a clean break from whatever they're currently doing. I just, I just love that idea. And, and you could do that very easily with having the NPC sort of in the, his voice write that note and bring it as part of what the PCs discover when they return after some heist or return after some, some definitely, outing. Definitely. Definitely. So, so Absolutely. Be, you know, it, 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 just, it just made me 
feel like you know that that's what you want to translate to the game table what you what you felt at the end of the story the idea that this is a tavern setting was really evocative to me and, and that kind of plays into some of the things i picked for reskinning that we'll get into a little bit later but i think uh, satamtra is talking about he's in his old age and he's drinking the wines that are heartening to age you know so you could certainly do a lot with goblets that are bejeweled and sort of the rich thief's sort of vintage, you know, in terms of rings and uh, and cups and uh, and sort of rich wines. And then it, it kind of made me think of maybe there's a possibility that you could do something with the narrative style of that kind of story in a game setting. And this this could be simple as something like the judge is introducing players to the story. So he's bringing the players to the table. He is acting that's a, that's a Tomcha's role where he's retelling a tale from, you know, the past and he's bringing it to life and the players are actually playing the characters in the tale, which is kind of like a, a way of blending narrative and, and a game system. I uh, like it. I, I really like that. I do, um, with some of my games, I've been known to do like sideways flashbacks where something is, is happening prior to the current adventure, but it's not the characters. It's a one-off with other characters that helps kind of fill in those narrative and history gaps. And that would actually be a perfect way to introduce that. You could kind of bookend it with you know the old retired character telling you the story of what had happened and then flash into it. No, that's a really good point, Mark. I like that. I like that. Yeah. And so it, that would be kind of a, a fun way of, of, like I said, taking what clearly Satamsha was trying to do, which is he is the first person narrator in this case and, and translating that to the game table. For music, I couldn't really come up with anything other than what kept echoing through my head. And I didn't capture this in my notes, but it certainly when you guys start talking about the background of the temple is to me that that sort of classic scene from the original Conan movie of Basil Pedora's soundtrack where he's in the the temple of the snakes and you know he's, right. he's hearing that sort of like throbbing beat that sort of climaxes and it ends with the, the robbery i mean that's that's very that's kind of a, very similar to what happens here and again i'm kind of going back to my conan uh, <laughs> uh, no, linkage here but but that's that's sort of the music i hear when i was going through the the temple scene with satantra and his his crew uh, what about you, Bob? Well, um, I, like Jen, avoided the obvious. Uh, <laughs> I thought something something about you know, with, the, with the blue smoke and everything, I had my brain conjured kind of the presence of like a, a heavy, maybe cloying incense, like maybe mm. like maybe that fake strawberry incense, something that's got kind of that sweetish smell mm-hmm. that it's oh, that, that yeah. it's not it's not comforting it sort of sets alarm bells running and if you've got something like that smoking at the table i think that would catch people's attention and smell like david used to tell us with stories of maybe leaving rotting meat uh smell <laughs> smell is very evocative of of memory and locks memories in so i thought that might be neat um I also, for some reason, the way this was all described, I kind of walked away with almost a Middle Eastern feel, and Hmm. I thought colorful silks kind of draped around the gaming area to help set the tone. Maybe it was because of the ritual prostitution, but to me, my brain conjured kind of that harem-style quality as opposed to just a regular brothel. Interesting association there. (laughs) And that, well, and that that kind of... Sorry, move your forward. words, not mine. That That's what I meant to say. <laughs> uh, that kind of moved forward when I got to my music choices, too. Like, I, I also went with Dead Can Dance, but I didn't go... Normally, Dead Can Dance, my go-to album is uh, The Serpent's Egg, and I didn't want kind of the grim... I wanted something more exotic, and uh, their album... Anastasis, specifically the songs Agape, Kiko, and Opium, which the title itself kind of fits, have kind of that 
dreamlike exotic feel. The sitar work of Ravi Shankar on, say, the album's Music of India, Chants of India, yeah, which has some work by George Harrison. Matter of fact, the song Prabhuji is uh, is a perfect example of what I was thinking about, or his album Genesis. The, you could just sum it up with Ravi Shankar, yeah. Well, no, because not all of his stuff really fits the it fits what I was I was thinking of. Okay, that's fair. Uh, Sari Galen. They they put out a live album, Endless Vision, that was recorded at an old, I'm trying to remember if it was an old palace or an old temple in Iran. And uh, that's that's a really neat Middle Eastern sound. And uh, Zakir Hussein, who is a very, very talented drummer. If it is a hand drum, he has mastered it. And the songs Jaital or Tintal, both of those are very, very evocative of that exotic vibe that that leapt to my brain. Not that this was necessarily a Middle Eastern culture, but the music the, the music for me as a Western listener is exotic, much like it would be mainstream for someone who listens to it all the time. So my choices fit for me, but I would say find something that's mostly, if not all, instrumental that is very exotic to your ear. And that's really the key, I think, to the music wrapped around this particular story and and anything you run with it. Find something exotic to your ear. So, well, Mark, you were mentioning uh, Inspirations and Reskins, so... Yeah, so the the two obvious ones that that came to to all of us, I think, were Lankmar. You know, that's... This is a clear parallel to a lot of the thief stories that we've seen in, you know, the, in the Lankmar setting, but also in the, the modules or adventures that have been released to date so far, plus the ones that, you know, are likely being worked as we speak uh, by the, the team hmm. uh, that's, that's hard, hard pressed to get it to the players. Um, the others were uh, the jeweler who dealt in Stardust. Yeah. Uh, and the Elzamon in the blood drinking box came to mind because that's another, you know, they are going into a pretty precarious situation to recover an object that, you know, they don't know much about in this case with the Elzamon. It had the same echoes. What I really thought the story evoked for me was getting back to that sense of a tavern tale. You know, this is a uh, Satantra trying to tell his listeners a, a rich tale to go with their wine, and he's trying to make it as enticing as possible. And so, a lot of the things that were submitted for the Gong Farmers Almanac 2016 were oriented around taverns. And a, a few of them were like the Drunk's Luck and House Rules for Adventure and Companions by Jogo... Uh, Nogiera. By, by Jogo Nogiera. Yeah, he I, says I, it's I, hard to pronounce, too. I, 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 I couldn't get it right on the other show. <laughs> um, but drunk, Drunk's Luck is a, a set of tools for drinking at a tavern. And the, the sort of the luck that befalls you or could befall you with just enough imbibement without going over the edge, you, you sort of have that, that extra sort of protection because you've you've sort of imbibed in that tavern atmosphere. And the, the Adventure Companion is meant to evoke you know, Farford and the Grey Mouser, you have a pairing of two players. And there's obviously some familiar aspects of that, you know, where you are benefited by their presence, but in their absence, you are diminished. Um, so he has a couple of nice articles on that. There's a random tavern generator by Keith Garrett, um, where if you needed to just, you know, kind of go down the list of, I need a tavern for my setting, I want to come up with it quickly. It's in, in a very in this, a table style approach where you can get you know very evocative entries just from a, a random set of dice rolls. There's the Thieving Hand of Glamox by Michael Bolum, and mm. I thought of this one because the allusion to Satamtra losing his hand in that first—he's a thief who's lost his hand. In this case, it's a magical artifact that thieves 
can get to replace a missing hand and oh. and it has some lich-like qualities to it which is kind of a, a neat neat feel and then a great adventure that i hope gets played in more settings is the orm lies down in punjar by terry olson it's a, just a mini adventure but it starts with a tavern scene and it's a great introduction to players who are thinking they are relaxing in a you know, a setting that is somewhat protected or safe. It leads into a fun, you know, sort of hallucinogenic adventure that Terry does a great write-up for. So all of those were just like, I, I wanted to sort of like re- re-bring those into the forefront since the, you know, Gong Farmers is one of those resources that, you know, hopefully gets a lot of use in, in actual play. But these are things that you could take from that for specifically for tavern settings, which is what I got a, a lot of the feel of the story from. Right. I, what about I you, I need Puff? to dig back into that uh, index. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's so much. There's so much good stuff so in Almanac that it, it can be very hard to keep track of. Yep. Well, I I immediately, of course, thought of of high stories as well. You know, as a matter of fact, when I was looking for a featured adventure, I was like, Masters Lankamar. No, we've we've already done that one. Uh, the jeweler <laughs> that who dealt in Stardust. No, no, we've already done that one too. Uh, and and both of those are are those very classic high stories, like like you mentioned, Mark. And I I fully agree that they would fit into the world of this story just as well as this story fits in into that world and you could easily write up the powder of hyperborea as an adventure and drop it into lankmar or drop it into punjar i i thought of madhouse meat as kind of a beginning you could just yeah. change change the upstairs from a magician's lab to the temple and everything's going wrong mm-hmm. and that was the, that was the uh, free rpg day 2016 is that right correct correct yeah. I thought of a few upcoming Lankmar releases that haven't been announced yet, uh, which made me thump my head because, well, they, they haven't been announced yet. So, <laughs> Although I think the titles have been announced. So yes, I definitely thought of No Small Crimes in Lankmar, which is a, a fantastic mm-hmm. story. And then, uh, especially in the direction for our feature, look at Adam Miskevich's heist tool in metal gods of urhadad issue number three there Mm. is great stuff in there because it's all about carrying out a heist without having to be able to account for every player plan instead it's well the more complications they have to overcome the higher this particular die rolls and the lower their loot might go so the more complicated things are it the die it uses the dice chain and it's really nicely done it's a great tool. As a matter of fact, I think that's something you'll find in, in all of the issues of Metal Gods of Ur-Hadad is stuff that is all about, here's a table that you can roll a few things on, take some notes, and you have everything you need. It's it's the general stuff. And for something like this, that heist tool would be fantastic. So those those were kind of the things that I had been thinking about. Um, it's it's good stuff. What about you, Jen? Believe it or not, I have nothing from Goodman Games on my list, and I'm not quite sure how that happened. Uh, <laughs> but thinking of one of the steps to get into this tunnel was to find the back entrance, which involved having to go through some caverns and some interesting traps. And the overall feel of that, and in fact, some of the specifics, brought to mind the Treasure Vaults of Zadabad from Stormlord Publishing. And with all of the vaults sprinkled across this hex grid of an island, they're not all simple to get to. So the feel of that really evoked the Zatabad vaults. And Operation Unfathomable, the upcoming release from Jason Schultes and Hydra Collective, 
in the DCC format. I know we, we featured them not too long ago. Even with some of the religious overtones, it really fit for this. So you could potentially run the same story within that module, which really helped for me. I also went with the ancient Hyperborean class that Arimati Pipo submitted for one of our companions, I believe episode number 32. Yeah. Yeah. And that was evoked from the very beginning of this story, which was describing it as a newly translated legend from the days before Atlantic on the world's first inhabited continent. And ancient Hyperborean class. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that we all kind of went this way in, in finding the tools. I went with the crawl zine issue number two. Mm-hmm. It's the loot issue. There's ideas for loot. I specifically love the tables for lucky items, which could also be magic or legendary items. And it just so happens there's an, a merchant NPC in there from John Marr. And the attitudes of that NPC would actually be a, a really good guideline for role-playing VZ. Because mm. it's not just open and friendly and honest he's a little bit okay hold it up no no i don't want to touch it i'm just going to evaluate it and (laughs) there's also additional equipment in that issue and it has the much beloved and used shattered shields and helmet law and finally i i'm gonna go with mark's idea you know continue the story even after you get that note from VZ. Maybe he gave you more than just one little ingot, but now you have to try to sell the stuff. And Yeah, that's not necessarily going to be you. Paul Wolf's Cragbridge, The Cursed Ruin, has a great table titled Tokens of the Damned. And it, it may not be a cursed item per se, but it's going to take a lot to unload that. Hmm, interesting. You know, and think about it, especially since you mentioned tools and the fact that we all had tools. I recently, on the Sanctum site, did a review for a product OS and R, Obliettes, Sorcery, and Reavers. And while it's its own system, it's not DCC, but I went through it looking for things I could take to my table. And if you're doing a heist, the chase system they have in I mean, it's three pages, that's it. And they're, the, the chase system in it is, for me, it's eye-opening and game-changing. They use something oh, very similar that. for social conflicts. And huh. so, so that you have more than just, well, you know, the player is always just going to be a badass and he's going to just threaten people. Okay, well, that's, that's going to work sometimes and sometimes that's not. And here's how that's going to respond. And it's, it's just quick charts and the social conflict. I mean, that's, that's a page. To me, I, it, it was a $13 PDF, which I was given for review, but the stuff that I found in it that I want to bring to my table to me was totally worth $13. Uh, there is stuff that I will, I will be using. A lot, and the chase system is is certainly part of it. Nice, and that kind of brings us to the DCC feature for the show, which is Street Kids of Ur Haddad by Edgar Johnson, out of Yay. Metal Gods of Ur Haddad issue number one. In this zero level adventure, your players will run several urchins, street kids from Ur Haddad. They have ventured far from home in hopes of pulling off a legendary coup against their rival street gangs making a name for themselves, and maybe even earning the right to become adventurers. As darkness falls, many of them may be having second thoughts. It's a long way home, and they must now dodge rival gangs bent on their demise, corrupt city guardsmen on the take, and other dangers of the night. 
Metal Gods of Urhadad billed itself as the zine that took things to 11. And so by my count, they still owe us eight issues. Um, <laughs> because I mean, this is a zine that stopped way too soon. And I'm hoping that, uh, that eventually we get an issue four because the tools in all of them, whether it was the, the one page tear out adventure drop in from Wayne or this adventure from Edgar or the heist tool from Adam Miscavige were all fantastic. But this adventure is fantastic. Fantastic. It's very structure light. It's, again, like the heist tool, it's mostly tables. So it's easy to prep ahead of time with some note cards. But if you're running any sort of city campaign, the adventure itself provides a great tool for kind of determining what the neighborhoods are like and what the gangs are, are like in the area. The tables talk about, you know, how the gang members distinguish themselves from other people, you know, how they dress, things of that nature. And right off the bat, that provides color. And those neighborhood and gang generators, I'm thinking, why isn't everyone using these already? <laughs> I'll, I'll admit, I should have been using them when I was doing the, the Lankmar playtest. You know, how yep. many routes through the neighborhood are there? What are the resources? Yep. Uh, now, granted, I did mostly just one neighborhood, but I mean, Edgar Johnson with the three tables that are in there, and I think each one mm-hmm. of them, like, or two of them are two pages and one of them is like three pages. They are chock full of great stuff. There is, there is nothing wasted in them. And again, it's not meant to, you know, give you every single NPC that the people are going to encounter. It's more meant to build up the vibe of what the common portion of the city is. And so you could use this adventure as kind of the starting point to lead to something bigger, like stealing 39 chastity belts, or maybe, maybe the urchins are stealing the 39 chastity belts. Ooh, uh, ooh, that gets dark. And, and they, well, it's, it's Urhadad. It's, Wait, it's, it's dark. the love potion. It's, uh, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> but yeah, it is Urhadad, which strikes me right off the bat as Metal Ilthmar. <laughs> Ilthmar is a little bit dirtier than Lankmar, and they all worship the rat god over there. So, yeah. Well, and I, I also thought it made a good stand-in for Clark's Hyperborea, especially with that table three. I think it's called, like, Just Another Day in Urhadad, where they idea is if you're making rolls and three rolls of six come up so six 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 comes up Mm -hmm. you roll on this table because weird things happen like flying apes descend and carry people off or you know a house comes alive and goes charging down the street or suddenly someone is twins so there's kind of this weird wild magic factor to ur hadad that may or may not ever come up in your game It, it it may or may not ever come up in the game but it's there this this strange wildness and the vibe that it gives, I think, is really cool. And while I was reading the story, I was thinking of Ur-Hadad. When I think Ur-Hadad, I definitely think the Middle Eastern music and like call to prayer and things of that nature. So for me, these two things just go so well together. And anybody that has not read the Metal Gods of Ur-Hadad zines i don't know if you can still get them in hard copy or not but they're pay what you want on drive through for pdfs with a suggested buy of a dollar buy them buy oh man (laughs) it was worth eight bucks yeah yeah it was really kind of i had to recall you know several years ago when those zines came out because to me as a player and and uh, you know just really getting into dcc it was it was kind of an epiphany to see that style of presentation of games and lightweightness that they had with the table approach and just how in-depth you could get just from a simple three-page you know outline basically mm-hmm. and and it was really it it kind of captured 
what I saw later, I think, as a player, it was kind of like a proto-catastrophe island, you know, in many ways, because it's, it yeah. sort of is billed as it's, you know, it's a zero level funnel adventure toolkit. It's a funnel, but it also provides that judge with just that randomness or just that you are creating the story as you are playing it, you know, sort of approach, which is, you know, very much about what Doug Kahn and, you know, the series of settings that have evolved over the course of that time. And, and, and obviously there's lineage between, you know, the metal gods and the Doug Kahn folks as well. So to me, it just, it just, it was just so, so eye opening, you know, as a player. So similar like what DCC was is, you know, kind of eye opening as well. But this is just them taking the system and applying it in a, in a very unique way. And it's totally worth getting that zine, you know, more so I'd say it's probably just playing or try or running it or getting into a game that's, that's similar in style to get to really capture what that feeling is. Because I, I think that's, that's really the, the secondary part of that is that you can read these things on the page, but playing it and just in just sort of the freewheeling improvisational style that's that this engenders is just the other aspect to complete the you know what the what they're intending to do with it and so definitely recommend that players go out and and try to find those games or run it for themselves well and after speaking with edgar about all of these and just the style that he writes in i found it very interesting that that brilliant practical advice given in the beginning is so brief you know <laughs> counting down from three to one three changes of costuming and garb and clothing are essential for the job and for blending in you know etc cetera, etc cetera. two every army marches on its stomach well hey this is what forced our main characters in the clark ashton smith story out of hiding after two days afterwards um, so he manages to grasp onto these super realistic concepts and just boil them down to Urhadad standards, which I love. And of course, number one, make a friend outside of your mercenary company. So in case the lot of you get slaughtered, there'll be someone left outside your family to say something nice at your funeral. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, nice. <laughs> Rereading Street Kids, it sort of made me wish in a way or weird way that this is sort of what Saga the Old City had been for that opening mm. scene that I wish we had gotten more of the Edgar Johnson vibe in that and a little bit less of the, you know, the bullying gang that you get to overcome sort of approach. But that's just, you know, going back a little bit in terms of, you know, some of the works that we've read and tying it there. I think that's what kind of Street Kids gets very right is it paints with such a, a short you know set of brushstrokes, a very complete setting. So... Well, and it operates under the assumption that everything doesn't have to be fully fleshed out. Every single person you meet doesn't have to be unique. You can tell people they come across a dirty beggar, and their brain will fill that in. You can tell them they come across a hardened mercenary, and they'll fill that in. You don't have to grind down in details, well, this guy has a handlebar mustache, and his name is Francois, and 12 nights ago he had bourbon. You don't, you don't need to know all these fine details <laughs> for a general story certainly if you've got important npcs they need to be detailed but this entire adventure is about common people you're not running into leveled characters or npcs to fight you're up against other zero levels it's you against the mob it's actually it's the borables meet the warriors is i think how i would i would best put it that that fits the quote on that 666 rule Things are weird and they're effing metal. Yeah. <laughs> I, I also love the emphasis of using all the weird dice. And they even include a D11 in there. But yeah, that, that hurt my the, brain a little bit. 
If you have the impact <laughs> miniatures dice, you've got a D11. It's no big deal. You do now, yes. <laughs> yeah. I've had for three years ago, three, four years ago <laughs> when this came out, when this came out in yeah. uh, 2014. So four years ago, there wasn't a D11, but you know, you could be creative and certainly you'd still be able to do it. But And I feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that the entire zine proceeds were going to standupforkids.org which is oh, nice. aimed at getting the teenage homeless off the streets. So there's my public service announcement. Well, speaking of public service announcements, why don't we move <laughs> over to, uh, to Rogue Crew shout <laughs> That was Do well it. done, Bob. Very well done. Thank you. Hey, uh, yes, uh, I, I planned it that way. That's a- Do it. We can rattle through these. Were you muttering under your breath about not having been at North Texas RPG Con in 2015? Were you even more pained when the Keepers of Mysteries began discussing the free release of Super Number 1 Food Tower by Matthew Goffon? Did you shake your fists in the air and curse the stars ere you were born that you would forever be prevented from enjoying this unique and highly limited oddity? Well, about that. Uh, you know the Sanctum Scorum's a library, right? You know what libraries are filled up with? Yep. All sorts of printed matter. Printed matter such as 50-foot ferrozine module number one, super number one, food tower 2015, North Texas RPG Convention Edition. That's right, the Sanctum Secorum kicked off 2018 by giving you a chance to win some pretty rare DCC third-party swag. The author gifted a small number of these ultra-rare zines to the Sanctum Secorum, and not only that, he provided enough of the pre-gen character sheets for every winner to have a sheet with four randomly created characters. So... What do you need to do to win one of these rarities? Just contribute a piece of content to our contest. For the next several months, we are running a series of themed contests with the winner to be chosen at random. Submit something and you too could win. So, what are we doing for the month of March? Spells. Go ahead and submit a DCC spell. Any level, cleric, wizard, patron, we Other. don't care. Other. <laughs> Submit that on to us for consideration. Every entry is worth one number in the drawing. If you include original art to go with it, each piece of art not only wins you an additional entry in this month's drawing, but in the month of June, when we do our art category, you will have entries there as well. So... Go ahead and email them to us at thehub at sanctum.media or mail them to Sanctum Segorum Contest, 4915 Rattlesnake Hammock Road, number 139, Naples, Florida, 34113. Our second runners-up will receive random pulls from the Sanctum Segorum's prize closet of mystery. Our January winners were John Hook with the frightening, disturbing, and really awesome Octobear, and our runner-up was James Posenel with Corpus, Messenger of Araman. And John Hook, of course, won the adventure, Super Number One Food Tower and the character sheets. And James Posnell is walking away with a copy of The Knight and Knave of Swords by Fritz Leiber. And John Ooh. Runner's The Wrong End of Time, a classic Daw Yellow Spine, no less. Mm. Nice. Congratulations. Yes, congratulations. And Speaking of Daw Yellow Spines, don't forget to check out the Appendix N Book Club podcast. 
Judge Jeff Goad is also running a biweekly MCC campaign now at the Brooklyn Strategist. And his podcast co-host, Hoy, is running DCC, I believe. See the DCC NYC meetup group for updates on the book club meetings or find Jeff online. M. Nixick is running DCC Funnels from 2 to 6 p.m. every Saturday at Tacoma Games in Tacoma, Washington. Timothy Drennan is running a bi-weekly open table Thursday night DCC game at Geek Out in Burleson, Texas. Jeff Bernstein continues running DCC RPG at Games Plus in Mount Prospect, Illinois. You can find Jeff online or check with the store for more details. I believe they're running every other Monday these days. Looking forward, April 27th through 29th gives us Red River RPG Con in Shreveport, Louisiana, where Matt Gullett will be running DCC all three days. Guardian of Secrets Tim DeShane is hosting a bi-weekly DCC campaign at the Revival Brewing Company in Cranston, Rhode Island. Upcoming dates this month are March 4th, okay, so uh, not, not so upcoming, Tomorrow. <laughs> and March 18th. The Mace West Convention is coinciding with GaryCon this year, but if you're closer to Asheville, North Carolina, it's worth a look. Judge Charles F., Kevin Hewer, and Michael Jones will be representing DCC, including an Inferno Road Tournament. Obligatory trigger warning, everything. Rated M for mature content, if not players. And oh my god, the amount of swag they've created for that is staggering. <laughs> mm-hmm. Join Kevin Searle on March 10th for a monthly MCC campaign at Rogue's Gallery Comics and Games in Round Rock, Texas. The DCC Road Crew is going wild in northern Indiana. Guardian of Secrets Judge Joan of Arc Troyer is running two weekly games. Every Thursday night from 6 to 10, you can find her running an open table in Better World Books in Goshen, Indiana. And beginning in March, she will be at Secret Door Games in Elkhart, Indiana, every Saturday, rotating on a bi-weekly basis between an established campaign and a table for younger players ages 11 through 15. There is a reason that this woman received a road crew judge write-up from Goodman Games. If you're in Indiana, check these games out. And Brendan LaSalle is a crazy man on a serious road crew mission. <laughs> in just the next six to eight weeks, he'll be running DCC and X-Crawl at Gary Con in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, Gamma Trade Show in Reno, Nevada, March 12th through 16th, GameStorm 20 in Portland, Oregon, April 5th through 8th, and MipaCon in Scranton, Pennsylvania, April 27th to 29th. And catch him as he makes one-time appearances in friendly local gaming stores along his route. Michael Hearn will be running the Harley Stroke Classic, Sailors on the Starless Sea, and Neil McLennan will be running Brendan LaSalle's Hole in the Sky on March 10th, starting at 1pm at Fort Gordon, as an event for better opportunities for single soldiers or boss. It gives stationed and barrack soldiers something to do with their downtime while spreading the DCC word. Nice. As a reminder, Cromcast, a weird fiction podcast, is covering the adventures of Fawford and the Grey Mouser throughout their season six. As you anxiously await the release of DCC Lankmar later this year, give these shows a listen. You can find them at thecromcast.blogspot.com. And of course, GaryCon is right around the corner. We've, yeah. We've bludgeoned this one to death. Um, we're, lots of people are going to be there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> everyone everyone will be there except Mark. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, and, and Joseph Goodman will not be there and Mark won't be there. Everyone and Harley. will be there. And Harley. And Harley, and Harley won't okay. be there either. So, we're going to so actually so have like, our own con separates. And, uh, screw you guys. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Wait, no, no. The, the, no, can we not have the having a baby's con? Oh, no, no. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Conception. There we go. Oh, God, yeah. no. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, uh, make plans for Gen Con coming up uh, <laughs> early to mid August. Um, plan your conceptions around it. Inconceivable. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the DCC presence could be even larger than last year from the sounds of it. Hey, come I on, say it's a gong! That we are on track, according to the latest numbers I've seen, for over 190 games of DCC. Oh, wow. That, that's 20 above last year already. Yeah. And it's, it's still only, only early in the year, so. Yeah, it's going to be beyond insane, and it will be glorious. Thinking of glorious and coming up a little later in the year, Free RPG Day is in June. And while the Free RPG Day releases have not yet been announced, folks, start thinking if you're going to run something and let us know. Last year, we cataloged a lot of events so people could find them literally all across the globe. And we are certainly hoping to have a much bigger list this year. So if you're planning on running something, drop us a line. Absolutely. And want to see your creation in the DCC community's only free monthly easing? In addition to the contest going through June, keep an eye out for our future topics and we can include your material in the show companion. We would love to see what sort of things you've created based on your Appendix N reading. Remember, we do have quite a few things in the prize closet of mystery to give away in return for contributions. Um, zines, modules, some great Appendix N, useless autographs, you know, whatever. Um, you can submit your creations to us at the hub at sanctum.media or find us on the regular social media sites and in addition to free rpg day if you're running road crew games drop us a line to let us know even better join the guardians of secrets send us your upcoming events for inclusion and once you've submitted a few successfully run events you'll be inducted into the roles of the guardians of secrets able to enter your events directly onto the calendar members will periodically receive exclusive items for their tables such as last year's free rpg day companion and other secret benefits we're also working on some automation for recurring events that that makes me super happy yeah again that is the hub at sanctum.media and if you're listening and looking for a game go to sanctum.media and click on the community events link be sure to scroll all the way down for full venue and host judge information in the meantime if you are enjoying the show drop us an email comment on the podcast chime in on rg plus page or help us by posting a review on itunes review those Those ratings and reviews help new listeners find us. So be sure to visit us on our Google Plus page. Mention us on Facebook. Ignore us on Ello. Ignore us on Ello. Yeah, I think there's a button for that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Following me on Ello, it's really weird because I I logged in once to make an account. I've never logged back in and I get notifications that people, so-and-so is following you on Ello. Why? Why are you following me on <laughs> Same reason people follow me on LinkedIn? I don't know. Oh, well, yeah, LinkedIn is a, is a cult, so I don't, I don't know. So we do hope we've inspired you. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. Good night. You have been listening to the Sanctum Secorum Podcast. Join us next time when the Sanctum Sequorum explores the work of John Belair's 
and the face in the frost. The Sanctum Socorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media. Copyright 2018. You go through your week with the same old routine. What you really want is some blood and thunder in your life. Well, friend, you found it. The Chromecast is an adventurous journey through the history of two-fisted pulp stories with your hosts, John, Josh, and Luke. We have action. Horror. An adventure. All through the lens of pulp luminary Robert E. Howard. Don't just stay in your ordinary life. Find your pulp life at thecromcast.blogspot.com. The Chromecast. The Chromcast. The Chromcast. A podcast for the barbarian at heart.